I hope that you found some real encouragement in that song, because if you're listening to the news alone, if you are involved in the midst of all of the political struggles of the day, or perhaps you are simply living in your own time of crisis today, there's a special peace and promise, a special hope that comes to all believers who are in Christ, with the understanding that no matter what might come to pass, He will hold us fast. What an important principle as we reflect upon what is taking place in our world, what is happening in our own personal lives, or even what's happening in Christendom today where it seems we're moving away from sound doctrine towards other things that simply will not provide what is needful and necessary in the times of trouble that are assured in Scripture with an equal assurance by the words of Jesus. In this world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. He will hold you fast. Again, I'd like to thank you for this last month, which we collected funds under benevolence for uh, some assistance in the Ukrainian crisis, particularly for those who are in grave personal need. The church collected $17,600 over the course of last month, and that is now in the mail. I encourage you to continue to pray for Nadia Samarski's parents, Pastor Oleg and Galena Sagan, who continue to minister, and many who are continuing to minister in that place to people in grave need. And in many ways, I pray that they might know as well that Christ will hold them fast. It kind of puts some of our menial struggles and burdens at a distant second or third or at the bottom of the list. When we stop to think about what's happening in other places of the world, continue to pray for them, continue to pray for their ministry and the ministry of Send International as these funds are used to assist in the humanity crisis taking place in Ukraine and bordering countries. If you take your Bibles, please, and turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a somberness to this book. There is some information in this book that resonates so closely to many of the things happening in our world today. And it's a text that is probably one of the most understood or misunderstood texts or books of the Bible in all of the Old Testament, if not the complete Scriptures themselves. We introduced this text to you a couple of weeks ago by giving you some information background, and we're going to dive into chapter one today, but it's important for all of you to know that what we speak of both today and next week, it is a part A and part B service, otherwise I would take far more than my time. That wouldn't be a problem for me, maybe for you. So over the next two weeks, we want to set the tone for how we are going to approach the book of Ecclesiastes. I believe it's the right approach. I believe it's a good approach. But chapter 1 and how you understand chapter 1 is critically important. I'd suggest that how you understand the world in which you live is really based on much of what is taught here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Again, it's a little bit different than our studies in 1 and 2 Peter. That is an epistle filled with doctrine where we can go line upon line and precept upon precept This text is, along with the the Psalms and the Proverbs, Song of Solomon, are what we call wisdom literature in Scripture. 
And the wisdom literature in Scripture deals with the pragmatics or the how-tos of how the world works. It also deals with big philosophical issues and simply small issues that we address with common sense every single day in our lives. The purpose of the wisdom literature in Scripture is how to teach us how to live well in whatever context and relationship we find ourselves, and it sets the tone for how we encounter and engage the culture at large. There are critical things to understand as this book seeks to address the issue, what is the true meaning of life? If you really want to know and not get bogged down in some of the depressing texts of the book of Ecclesiastes, because he says some very difficult things in this book, know that the end of the matter in chapter 12, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the writer says, let's simplify this. After all that's been said, fear God and keep His commandments. Good counsel for every age, but particularly the age in which we live today. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Great start to a book. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun? What is the point of life? What is this all about? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run into the sea. But the sea is not full. The place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us, and there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. He begins the text by saying everything is meaningless, a breath, a vapor, a chasing after the wind. He expounds upon that, and he rounds out this section of verse 11 and says, and then you die and no one's going to remember you. What pleasant counsel. That's why most churches and Christians don't attack the book of Ecclesiastes. But how we attack and understand the book of Ecclesiastes does not mean to be solely defined in this pessimistic, fatalistic, empty kind of way. In fact, I believe he is using a tool of apologetics to bring us to the place where we recognize and understand that life is indeed absurd if you do not consider God. If He is not part of the picture, if He is not a part of your reality, 
If you have rejected anything transcendent in this world is all there is, you live and you die, and nobody is going to remember you. So what is his point? Well, it's going to take us a number of months to expound and to get to his point, but whenever you get discouraged in the context of this study, turn to chapter 12, verses in 13 and 14, fear God and keep His commandments. That's what life is really all about. Father, again, we pray for the guidance and the wisdom that comes only by Your Spirit that we would grasp the writer of Ecclesiastes lays before us. We would be reminded of the meaningless nature of life under the sun without God, that we would look in the right place as we pursue an answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? And as this sets the tone for the rest of our study, I pray that it will be in the context of remembering the conclusions of the writer and that somehow in the context of life, in our everyday life, with matters that we deal with every single day, you would give clarity of thinking, a profound wisdom beyond our capacity and capability, and a clear direction to live our lives not just horizontally but vertically, remembering that you know the end from the beginning, that no one will thwart your ways. You do what is in keeping with your promises and according to your will, all for your glory. But remind us, the lessons that we learn under the sun are for our good as well, for it allows us to keep and to maintain a perspective that is not just under the sun but beyond, and an eternal realm where you make all things new. May it lead us for profound understanding as we sing the words, He will hold us fast. Knowing the end from the beginning, making all things beautiful in your own time, doing what is right and best for your glory and our good. Give us a sense of direction, not just in our theological statements, but on Monday morning when we wake, grant us a perspective that allows us to maintain our hope and faith in a hopeless generation. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, back to the first verse, the words of the preacher, the son of David King in Jerusalem. The word that he uses there is koheleth. It is a word that means the one who gathers together and assembles. It means the convener of the assembly. It is someone who has a, an imparted kind of wisdom that gathers all who wish to hear together and expounds upon life, upon reality, about day-to-day living, and about what the essence of life, the meaning of life really is. Now, right from the first verse and throughout the context of the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe that the man who is probably closest to the descriptors that we read all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes would be Solomon. But there is some great debate in the church today about Salmonic authorship. Did he really write it or didn't he? But really the book of Ecclesiastes is not about the writer, it is about the content and the wisdom that he passes on. Sinclair Ferguson calls the writer a 
upon it. One of the quotes from his text is, who and what was the Koheleth? The name is really a title. It means the public teacher. Perhaps we might call him the professor, or even better, the pundit, the learned man, or at least the person who believes he can speak as an authority. So this convener of an assembly has been yielded to. He has been given some kind of authoritative position to gather the people together and to share with them the true meaning of life as he uses a particular style of infinitum et certum, of bringing things to their absurd conclusion if God is cut out of the picture. In a very apologetic way, he then speaks to life. Pundit is an expert in a particular subject or a particular field who is frequently called upon to give opinions to the public at large. In essence, this pundit, this koheleth, this convener of the assembly is exercising what Socrates encouraged in Greek philosophy, where he wrote and stated that the unexamined life is not worth living. And the writer says, I'm going to look at life, and I'm going to examine life, and I'm going to study life, and I will share with you my conclusions. And he gathers the people together. But what is important is what he says in verses 2 and 3. And as he comes to his conclusion and his assessment in life, he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, the Koheleth, the, the convener of the assembly, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun? You will see that phrase over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. So he is referencing his perspective when he writes particularly chapter 1 in this text. And he will jump back and forth from uh, simply talking about life under the sun and then expanding and dropping these, these gems, if you would, these, these diamonds about living life beyond the sun and, and outside of this horizontal existence. But he's examining life, and he's sharing what he's known and what he's learned, but he's doing it all from the perspective of this world only. Whenever you look at life from this world only, excluding God and excluding transcendent and excluding His Word, you will look for these off-ramps, avenues of escape from the reality of a world without God. Because in the end of the day, a world without God is empty and meaningless. There's nothing there. There's nothing that satisfies. There's nothing that answers the biggest questions in life. So we look for these escapes from reality. We see it all over in our world today, morally and ethically, drugs and alcohol, all kinds of lasciviousness and change, this notion that we are the determiners of truth and etc. But none of that brings any satisfaction. And that's what he means in verse 3. In spite of all of the toil and the labor that we put into life, there's nothing there. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis once wrote. If we find ourselves with a desire in this world that nothing can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that is the conclusion of the Koheleth as he finishes the text and says, it doesn't work without God. Fear God and keep His commandments. That word 
meaningless or, or vanities of vanities. It's looking at life and a world without God. It is addressing the reality of the emptiness of life and the impending nihilism that takes place, a fatalistic kind of nothing matters. So eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. He says in verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Time passes, generation after generation after generation after generation, he says toward the end in verse 11, there's no remembrance of the former things. We're quickly forgotten. You know, we spend a lot of time in our lives trying to, to leave a legacy behind, trying to leave something, trying to make ourselves eternal at least, or, or lasting into eternity in the confines of this world. But the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes says, good luck with that. They will forget you, and it will be sooner rather than later, because time marches on generation after generation after generation. Interesting, when you read the Old Testament Scriptures, the nation of Israel was reprimanded by God on numerous occasions, and what does He say? You have forgotten. You have forgotten. You have forgotten. You have forgotten. Why did they forget? Because in this repetition of life, when God is cut out of the equation, we have this tendency of making the same mistakes that have been made from the beginning of time putting all of our eggs in one basket and believing that somehow we can find happiness under the sun, but it's not there. But few follow the philosophy and teaching of C.S. Lewis. Even though nothing in this world satisfies the deepest longings of your life, most of our world does not want to consider the alternative. And the alternative is to make yourself accountable to a holy and righteous God and live life on His terms. It is Romans chapter 1 that comes out of this text and reminds us that although the world knows God, they refuse to listen, to obey, and to wrestle with the deepest issues of life. Generations come and go and come and go and come and go, and then you die. And forget about being remembered forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. And to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. He's painting the picture of a world under the sun where things just happen in this vicious, meaningless cycle, and things just happen, and there's nothing new under the sun, and, and the doldrum of that kind of existence, we just hang on. We try and make our own way. We try and figure out what life is all about, and it ends up empty, full of vanity, and there is no profit under the sun. All is habel, empty, fleeting, vaporous, a chasing after the wind. In chapter 1, the writer of Ecclesiastes is simply making it perfectly clear that if you see life outside of God, cycling through with no rhyme or reason, you will live a life of despair. 
That's exactly what he shares with us in chapter 1. Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. I want to get off the hamster wheel. I'm tired. This is meaningless. And I get up and do the same thing every day, and I go to bed, and I get up the next day and do the same thing, and I go to bed, and I get up again the same day. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on, and it's empty, and it's meaningless, and it's wearisome, so weary a man cannot even utter it and explain it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing, for what has been is what will be. It will come around again. Now, there's some things in culture that seem to prove this point. I will say to the young people today, whatever is in style, hang on to it for the next 15 or 20 years, it'll come back eventually. Put it in your closet, right? Life just circles, and we go back to the same things over and over and over again. And and when we live in this lifeless world and there's no creativity, what do we do for entertainment? Have you noticed? We just kind of recycle old programming and old movies, and we remake them, and there's nothing new under the sun. We're just caught in this vortex, in this empty cycle, and what is the point anyhow? Again, don't get discouraged. This is very important information and language to frame the book of Ecclesiastes. Is there a thing of which it is said this is new? Oh, we like to think so. Really, it's the same old, same old. Sometimes we get caught in this trap, even in our culture, of thinking things have never been as bad as this before. There's nothing new under the sun. We saw the tragic decline and disappearance of the Roman Empire following almost the same path of Western civilization today. And if you think about the evil of our culture You needn't go any further than the book of Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve sin against a holy and righteous God, and in chapter 4, brothers are killing each other. How did that happen? It happened so quick. What is the point of all of this? Is there anything new under the sun? No. It has been already in the ages before us, and again in a morbid kind of way, and then you die. There's no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. You say, but pastor, tell me what it means that that the streams run into the sea and the sea is not full. You see, this is wisdom literature. It's not about breaking down to those statements and trying to read some scientific reality into it and grasp them. He's giving and painting with a broad brush to teach us a much more important principle. So we must base the text on the text, but understand what is he truly trying to communicate. And here's what he's communicating. As we go through life without God, as we go through life maybe in an agnostic fashion saying, well, there might be a God, but you can never know Him. If we go through life without God and His principles, even though you're drawn to or believe that you are pursuing some God, however you might describe that, it is a fleeting effort that brings no hope and promise whatsoever. And why is that? Well, interesting enough, as you look at the text, there's some really important things that you can learn. In essence, what I take from chapter 1, at least in this portion of our introduction into chapter 1, is that every culture views existence as either cyclical 
or linear, and both have real-life implications. He is describing for us a world under the sun without God. And that world under the sun at the exclusion of God is a cyclical existence. There's nothing new. History repeats itself. Everybody goes through the same experiences. And when you're gone, the next generation is up, and they'll go through exactly what you went through. And there's this endless cycle, this vicious cycle of meaninglessness that, that permeates the culture and the world at large under the sun in this horizontal kind of existence. Or we read in Jewish literature, time and history are not cyclical, it's linear. There's a definitive beginning, there is a definitive end, and there are defined times in between. I want you to know that even from the book of Genesis, this has been the debate, this has been the struggle, this has been the perspective trap that people find themselves in. Same old, same old, round and round and round and round and round and round and round it goes in some fatalistic kind of fashion. You can't do anything about it anyhow, so hang on and find your own way and do what makes you happy. Or there's a purpose to life. There's an order to our existence. There's an order and a purpose to this created cosmos, and, and there's a plan and although that plan might, might be elusive to us right now, if we could find and understand that plan, we could finally identify and make sense out of life and the happiness that is so elusive. But in the Egyptian culture, all the way through the Greek culture in which we find the context of the New Testament, the philosophy of the day in both of those cultures was a skepticism was depicted by the image of a circle that just goes round and round and round. There's no definitive beginning. There's no definitive ending. There's no defined times in the context of your life. It just goes round and round and round and round in a vicious cycle of insignificance that leads us to nihilism, this philosophy of despair that says, what is the point? There's nothing of value under the sun. There is no absolute truth. There is no absolute morality. There is no absolute ethic or ethos. And isn't that the culture that we're living in? It goes round and round and round and round. And each generation makes the same mistakes as the generation before it. That's this cyclical understanding of of time and history and a worldview that leads to the nothingness that he addresses in chapter 1. Yet the Hebrew view is linear in nature. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, you should know better to ask. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. What does that tell us? Life isn't cyclical in nature. It was a definitive starting point for everything in existence today. And what we will learn from Scripture is there will be a definitive ending for everything that has existed from the day of creation until the day that He makes all things new. So right in the beginning of Genesis, we understand 
that life isn't cyclical, it's linear. There is a definitive point of beginning and a definitive point of termination. We are not a cosmic accident. The world is not chaotic. There is an eternal purpose and dignity for the lives that God gives us under the sun. You are special, created by God in His image to fulfill a purpose and the shortness of life, but to live forever with your God to the grace that is found in Christ alone. For those who don't understand the special mandate out of Genesis chapter 1, you will see life as being cyclical, like Murphy's Law. And I'm Murphy. Well, it's sunny this morning, but I know it's going to storm this afternoon. That's what the writer is talking about. The inability to see something bigger than this seemingly senseless cyclical work under the sun. Quickly. Didn't plan to do this. I will anyhow. Chapter 3 of the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 1. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. What is the writer saying? In a fit of lucid thinking, he is saying, no, it just doesn't meaninglessly happen over and over and over again. There's an appointed time, an appointed season, a time in history and a time in your life that God appoints everything that takes place, good or bad, for His glory and your good. This isn't cyclical and meaningless. God is doing something in your life according to His plan. And here's what it says in verse 14. Again, in a state of lucid thought, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, and nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, and people fear before Him. Do you hear the Hebrew thought in, in His presentation? In this Greek and, 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 and Egyptian and philosophy of the day, life is cyclical and goes round and round, and there's nothing new under the sun. But if God is a consideration, there is a definitive beginning and a definitive termination point for all of life. And in between those two points, God is doing something in your life and your culture and this world. He is interjecting into this created telos and revealing Himself to us. For those who don't want to buy that line and say, ah, this God stuff doesn't work, well, if that's true and there is no God, then life is a very cruel joke, a tale told by an idiot that leads to vanity and vexation of spirit with no profit under the sun. Let me ask you a question. In a world like that, our world, why is there still this pursuit for human rights and dignity? Something in the heart of man, even sinful man who has excluded God, tells him there's got to be something more. There's no place for human rights and dignity in a cyclical world without God can only be found in the fact that in the beginning, God created, and in chapter 1, male and female created He them. The end of chapter 1, God blessed them. 
be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. There are reasons that we exist. The world today, and maybe you this morning, is in the middle of an identity crisis. An identity crisis is really defined by two questions that everybody asks themselves sooner or later in life. Who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going? What is the point of all of this? Do you know that even the unbeliever, even the Egyptian skeptic, even the Greek skeptic, even the unbelievers and agnostics and atheists today still must come face to face with those questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going? This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to address. So, I want to point out a passage of Scripture that will show you that this book of Ecclesiastes plays out in a very apologetic way in the Apostle Paul's life in Acts chapter 17. Flip there quickly, Acts chapter 17. Paul is in Athens, and he is reasoning with the philosophers of the day, and what do these philosophers believe? They believe in skepticism. They're trying to figure out life. They reason every day to try and figure out the meaning of life, but God is never a consideration, at least not the God of the Bible. In fact, they have many gods. Now, while Paul, verse 16, was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He says in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. What were they trying to find? They were trying to find the meaning of life. But again, their philosophy was outside of God under the sun. So they would reason, and they would reason, and they would reason, and they would reason, and it would just bring more questions than it brought answers because there are no answers under the sun. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. Something else needs to be considered. And God took Paul to Athens to introduce to them what that other thing was going to be. And what we said about Jewish thinking and linear time comes into play as he reasons with these philosophers. Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, these were the two main schools of philosophy at that particular time, and the, the Epicureans would say, well, live for the moment, do whatever makes you happy because that's what life is all about. There's nothing else but this cyclical life, so do whatever makes you happy. It is a philosophy of despair that is rooted in, if it feels good, do it. Tell me that's not our culture today. culture is far more healthier today, aren't they, with that philosophy? <laughs> we are more broken than we've ever been. The stakes are raised even higher, and those who refuse to acknowledge God are doubling down and spiraling into despair. 
scratching their heads saying, I, I, I don't know what went wrong. What is this all about? What, what, should, what should we do? Then there are the Stoic philosophers. They were the extreme fatalists of the day. Stop worrying about tomorrow. There's nothing that you can do. Whatever is deemed to happen by fate will happen. There's nothing that you can do about it. So they developed in this Stoic philosophy, this philosophy of imperturbability. What in the world does that mean? You must develop within yourself because you can't control anything that happens outside of yourself. Life is cyclical, right? You, you can't control any of it. You can't do anything about it. So just learn to react in a way of imperturbability. Just accept it. Live with it. Don't show any extreme emotion one way or the other. They're taking the opposite path. Just, just live out your life because this is what it's going to be. There's nothing more. In fact, the Stokes would say the only power you possess in your life is in how you respond to external realities. Now, there was an element of truth to that, but it was still empty because they never considered God. Listen to what Paul tells them. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. You're looking for the source of the meaning of life. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, let me tell you about him. Don't you love how Paul does this? <laughs> so you're going through all the motions. This, this, this idol, I, I know who it is. Listen to where he starts. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and on earth, does not live in temples made by man. What you are looking for, you will never find here. And he starts where? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why does he start there? Because he has to move them from their philosophy of a secular life that just spins and spins and spins with no meaning and significance to a linear kind of thought that what if there's a God? And there was a beginning, and there was an end, and this does really matter. He says he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. So he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everyone. In, in him you have life. He's going to say that a little bit later on. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods. Oh, there's that time and space interjected. God is doing this after the counsel of His own will, and what He's doing is good, but it is God who was sovereign, not you, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He's actually not far from each one of you. So Paul uses their feelings against them. He says, all of the restlessness that you're feeling today must mean that there's something that you're missing, and what you're missing is God. You haven't tried Him yet. You've tried everything else. You haven't tried God. He quotes from one of their poets in him we live and move and have our beings. There is a, a telos, an order, a purpose of creation, as even some of your own poets have said. 
for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or, or an image formed by the art or the imagination of man. You're looking in all the wrong places. You will not find what you're looking for. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands that all people everywhere repent. Repent of what? This cyclical understanding of life and to the place that tells us in the beginning, God. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Here is what you've been looking for your whole life. And it's not found in your, your circular philosophy and life under the sun. It is only found in God. And then He speaks of the issue again of time and space, that God who had a definitive beginning for all of the cosmos that we know today is going to bring a determined end to it, and every one of you will be judged. Now, isn't it fascinating that in the morbid launch of the pursuit of the Kohalath, he concludes with the very same thing, fear God and keep His commandments because this is what life is all about and every work will come into judgment. That's what the writer is dealing with. And Paul uses that to appeal to the masses. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. And there was a mixed review. There were some who believed and some who didn't. But Paul had no say over that. The only thing that Paul could do was speak truth into a culture that believed that life was cyclical, fatalism was real, there was nothing that you could do about it, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And Paul said, oh, what a simple life. There's more, there's more than that. There's more than that. R.C. Sproul, as he considers both this text and the text of Ecclesiastes, coined one of his most famous sayings that he used often, right now counts forever. Why does right now count forever? Because we live in time and space, and our life begins at the time of our conception, and it ends when we go from this world to the next world. And in every stage along the way, there are appointments, divine appointments that God speaks into your life, opportunities that He gives you, clarity that He brings to you, and every single day and every single moment in time and space matters. It matters. So when you are trying to find the meaning of time and the meaning of this world, you must look at the life that you've been given. You must ask the deepest question, does life have meaning? And you must understand that there's more to life than what you see under the sun in this secular kind of, of life. And if life is simply a cosmic accident, a random collision, and mutations of inner matter, you die without ever finding your purpose. Paul says you're on the right track. You're just not looking in the right places. Let me tell you about your unknown God. Let me tell you something this morning. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're experiencing. I don't know your hurts and your pain. 
I don't know what keeps you up late at night. I don't know what you worry about most, but I do know this. The answer to all of those questions can be found right here, right now, in God. Fear God and keep His commandments, because that's what life is all about. You see Ecclesiastes in the end. It's a meditation on what it means to be alive in a world that God made and called good, yet a world which has also gone so very wrong, often in catastrophic ways. In essence, you cannot do this. You cannot find your way. There is no meaning to life, and there is no hope between the day of your birth and the day of your death if there is no God. It's not that they don't know it because He has given them eternity in their hearts. This isn't a matter of intellectual honesty or dishonesty. This isn't a matter of we didn't give them the right answers to the questions. Make no mistake about it, this is about a choice. And Paul says in Romans, although they knew God, they worshiped the Creator, they worshiped the creation more than the Creator and they refused to acknowledge His existence. Ecclesiastes gets us a peek into our lives and how it all ends without God. So I remind you once again, Augustine of Hippo, I've used this quote on a number of occasions. He summed up the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe even Paul's point in Acts chapter 17. God, you have made us for yourself. If you're caught in this cyclical hamster wheel, or over and over and over and over and over in a meaningless fashion, life just happens. You check off the day on the calendar. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. But in the midst of time and space, when you see that this minute, at this time, ordained by a God who controls everything, matters, it changes everything. And now our eyes are open to see, even though we don't understand everything, our eyes are open to see what is the meaning of life And we already have been told, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This isn't as depressing a book as I thought when we started. This is profound and speaks to the very issues of the day for the glory of God right now counts forever. What's your perspective? Father, bless us encourage us, challenge us, and grant to us eyes to see. Remove the endless repetition of life that brings us to no definitive conclusions. Show us that we are here, designed by a Creator to know all the pleasures of life and the promise of eternity. 
Teach us how to live every day as if it counts forever for your glory. As we finally get this right, help us to get it right in Jesus' name. Amen.